multi-week journey as we begin to walk our way through the book of Exodus. And it is filled with drama. It is filled with all kinds of uh, just spectacular things that we're going to see. But I really do hope that as we journey into this book, that it's more than you just tracking with some preachers as we walk through a book, but it's a journey for your own heart. It's a journey for you personally as you begin to see the God of the Bible. This is not a, an ancient story that was made up many years ago and managed to slip into this old book. It is a book, a story about God. It is a story of historical fact. It is a story that has been looked after and savored throughout multiple generations and millennia that speaks about the God that began to show himself originally through Abraham. We've got this guy, Abraham, who 400 years before the part that we pick up on has heard a promise from God in Genesis chapter 12, where God says to him, Abraham, actually Abram at the time, I, I love you, I'm for you. And, and out of you, I want to both bless you and cause you to be a blessing. I want to do something amazing through your life. And it's not only because I, I'm, I, I like you more than everyone else, it's because I love everyone. I want you to be blessed and to be a blessing so that you can show the world who I am and what I'm like. And Abraham, along with his son Isaac and Jacob, have very imperfect lives and do multiple things that make you realize that the Bible is not a book of heroes. It's a book of God showing himself to be very kind and gracious to a book of delinquents who do so much wrong. And yet they seem to do one thing right when it matters is to trust God. And so Abraham gets this promise. He hands the promise over to his son Isaac and, and his son Isaac to Jacob. And Jacob has 12 sons. And these sons uh, are also delinquent and they get jealous of their brother Joseph. And uh, because they get jealous, they say, let's get rid of him like all good siblings do. Let's uh, leave him for dead out in the desert. Hey, that's good brothering, right? Well, you decide. And they leave Joseph out for dead in the desert, and these merchants come pick him up. They take him to Egypt. And it's in Egypt that Joseph, through a series of most unlikely events, ends up going from prison to palace to prime minister. He becomes the prime minister of Egypt. A massive famine hits the, the, the area that his brothers are living in, and they're forced to go to Egypt. Unbeknownst to them... Their very own brother is the prime minister. And through a crazy series of events, they find themselves in a room and their brother says, it's me, Joseph, the guy you left for dead out there and told dad that I was dead. It's me. I am now the prime minister, the second in charge over the whole of Egypt. And these brothers are blown away. And the story of God continues to track from Abraham through Isaac, through Jacob, through Joseph and the 12 sons. And they come and settle in Egypt. These people who are promised that one day they will live in the land that we know as Israel. And it would be their homeland. And it's from there that God would bless the world. They're now in Egypt, and they begin to make a home for themselves in Egypt. And because of Joseph's connections, it becomes a pleasant place for them to be. And we pick up now in the story of Exodus where basically time has elapsed. Time has passed. That Pharaoh who looked favorably upon this family who have begun to grow, Joseph's family, Abraham's family, Abraham's their great-great-great-great-granddad, we pick up the story in chapter 1 of Exodus, and we're going from verse 6. And I'm going to try to cover two chapters, so you've got to move with me if you've got your Bibles open. 
So here we go. Now Joseph and all his brothers and all the, that generation died. But the Israelites were exceedingly fruitful. They multiplied greatly, increasing in number, and became so numerous that the land was filled with them. Then a new king, to whom Joseph meant nothing, came to power in Egypt. Look, he said to his people, the Israelites have become far too numerous for us. Come, we must deal shrewdly with them, or they will become even more numerous. And if war breaks out, we'll join our enemies, fight against us, and leave the country. So, we've got this amazing thing happening in Egypt. These Jewish people who are the, the children of Abraham have begun to become more and more numerous. What God said to Abraham has happened, that they would be multiplied. There'd be many of them, and they have grown from a, a sort of little tribe of 12 brothers living together and have become a big grouping of people living in Egypt. And the Egyptian pharaoh has passed away, the one who looked favorably on them, and now there is someone who is feeling threatened by their very existence in the country. And he says, now let's deal shrewdly with them. And this pharaoh begins to tighten the screws on them being in Egypt. And he begins to make it incredibly unpleasant to be an Israelite in Egypt. And really, this becomes the, the sort of backdrop for the whole story of what we're about to read in the next 10, 12, 15 chapters. In fact, the whole of Exodus is what I would call a great showdown. It's an amazing clashing of powers where the God of the Bible, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, is to come up against the powers that be at the time. The most powerful person, the most powerful nation that exists at the time is Pharaoh. And God is coming to show himself through the people of Israel that he is even more powerful than he. That's what's happening. And you will begin to pick up throughout this book as we read through Exodus that God is doing everything he can, not to uh, kill crops and to cause all kinds of harm and bring plagues. His primary purpose is to show to the powers that be and the people around that he is God on the throne, that he is the king, and that he is the one true God, and that every power is less than him. That's a big, major showdown. don't know about you, uh, but when I grew up, uh, and I didn't grow up in a boxing family, but we knew when one of those big heavyweight boxing matches or fights was about to happen. It was like uh, the names that I remember as a real little kid were names like uh, Evander Holyfield and Mike Tyson. I still see him on Instagram every now and again. And um, there was another guy, Lennox Lewis, an absolute monster of a man. And we'd wake up early in the morning to watch what they would call the great showdowns. Uh, maybe in more recent times, you're watching people like Conor McGregor against uh, recently, I think it was Dustin Poirier, these guys are fighters, and there are great showdowns, and people will stay up all night to watch the great showdown of the two greatest fighters in the world coming up head to head. This is basically a tiny, tiny example of what was happening in the heavenlies, in the story of Exodus, where God is doing everything he can to show the nation of Israel and to show the world that he really is God on the throne, that he really will be the loving God that he promised to be to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and to the world. 
And so we see this massive oppression that is happening to the Israelites. First, you see uh, this in verse 11. So it says this of them. So they put slave masters over them to oppress them with forced labor. And they built Pithom and Ramesses as store cities for Pharaoh. But the more they were oppressed, the more they multiplied and spread. So the Egyptians came to dread the Israelites and worked them ruthlessly. Notice, firstly, this economic slavery. You see that word slavery? They put masters over them, and they put them into slavery. That's what's happening throughout this book. There is this picture, as you read the book of Exodus, that there is a people who are enslaved to Pharaoh, to the people, and they are under a number of different kinds of oppression or slavery. Firstly, you see here, there's economic slavery. A grouping of people are used to build whole cities. Just think about it. That kind of slavery uh, doesn't exactly exist today, albeit there is much slavery in our world today. And this was a group of people who were used economically to simply build another city. Or social slavery. How awful is this? It's unthinkable. In verse 22, it says, Then Pharaoh gave this order to all his people. As he's becoming more and more threatened by the Hebrew people, it says, Every Hebrew boy that is born to you, you must throw into the Nile River, but let every girl live. This is a gross social slavery. He becomes so threatened by their existence that he basically begins to start a mass genocide of every firstborn boy you'll see that this becomes such a key part of the Jewish faith as the years pass by, as the exodus happens, they have such an incredible sanctity of life because of these acts of God that he begins to reveal that he loves people. He begins to push back on the Pharaoh's social slavery and just absolute shocking behavior. I think it all amounts to a radical and gross spiritual slavery. You know, when we talk about spiritual anything, when we're talking from the scriptures, we're not talking about a compartment of life that is, you know, the more mystical, hard to understand stuff. When you hear the word spiritual, it's talking about the most important matters that filter down to everything. And what's happening for the, the Israelites is they are under a spiritual slavery. You see, what happened when it came to the Pharaoh was a Pharaoh believed that he was functionally a god. He was a god. This wasn't just like a guy who was a you know, really powerful president of a country. He believed himself to be a god. Whatever he said went. If he wanted people dead, he would kill them. If he wanted uh, people to work harder, he could enslave them. What he said went. And he was a tyrant. And so what's happening here is that the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob is coming up and he is saying, I don't stand for spiritual slavery. I want to free my people so that they can worship, so that they can actually allow their hearts to love and be loved by the one true God. The, the experience that every human being should be able to have is to love and be loved by God. And he wants to free them from the spiritual slavery. Now, if you look closely, and we'll put a picture up of this, the picture for the pharaoh, and, and you look on most archaeological pictures of any pharaoh, their headdress or their crown would basically be like the head of a cobra. You imagine that cobra's head up. This is exactly what they thought themselves to be. The snake was the, the image of power and ruling. Now, 
I want you to just think about this for a moment. Is every likelihood, say most theologians, that Moses wrote both Genesis and most of Exodus. So now think about this. You've got in Genesis chapter 3 this prophecy with Adam and Eve that Adam and Eve have sinned and made a mistake. And it says, but from your seed will come one who will crush the head of the serpent. If you're a follower of Jesus, you're going to say, well, Rog, that's Jesus who ultimately came and crushed the head of the serpent. Yes, but there's a lot of people who would believe that there was an interim fulfillment of this prophecy, that it was actually God coming into the nation of, of, of Egypt at the time, and he was bringing a foreshadow of the crushing of the serpent. He was going to do something in Egypt that was going to crush the power. He was going to show himself as more powerful against this tyrannical and evil leadership that was oppressing Israel and anyone who came up against his leadership. This is an amazing moment. This is a great showdown where God says, this far and no further. And he is preparing a people as we begin to read into this great showdown where God will reveal he is the God over all gods. He is the king over all kings. He is the ruler over all rulers. And he is going to reveal this systematically until it is understood. One of the amazing applications, probably for us, and which was really important even then, and you will pick up as we read through Exodus, is that although this shows that God was going to do this to free the people and take the people out of Egypt, there was also another thing happening. That whilst God was taking the people out of Egypt, he would also spend a lot of his time trying to take Egypt out of the people. This, this Pharaoh-like mentality to abuse power, to, to keep moving away from the one true God and trusting in self would be the journey of the people of Israel for generations to come. And it's often the journey for many of us. It's often the journey when we say yes to the one true God, it doesn't mean that we keep saying yes. We say some big yeses and some very foolish no's. And our journey meanders as we try our best to practice the ways of Jesus and follow him, but it's never perfect. Welcome to the great showdown. Welcome to the journey of Exodus as we begin to track a people being freed by God to become the people that God wants to reveal his love to them and to the world, and we'll see that they get some things right and some things wrong as God reveals himself. So that's the first part of what I want to share, is that this context for the next while is we're going to track, and hopefully you're going to read in your own time and reread a few times through this beautiful story of Exodus, and you'll see this beautiful picture of a showdown, God, the true God, up against Pharaoh. But secondly, you've actually got God preparing a people for works of redemption. You see, God is the true redeemer God, and he is going to be doing the heavy lifting, and he's going to be doing the redeeming. But now we're going to enter into Moses' world, and we'll see how God prepares Moses, and consequently we'll learn how God prepares us to partner in his redemptive work. Could it be that actually as we read this journey and we see the great showdown, that God might be preparing you and I for some fresh fruitfulness, for some, for some new assignments in the kingdom, for some, some new things that he may want to do. 
Well, I'm going to suggest uh, that there are going to be two things that God uses and then two things that God changes as he prepares us for future fruitfulness, to be part of his redemptive work. And I'm going to suggest that it actually is going to happen in uh, obscurity, oppression, and opposition. Our Americanized Christianity doesn't always like that, but as we read, you're going to realize that God could be preparing you and I, sometimes in obscurity, oppression, and opposition. So we carry on. Chapter 2. Like I said, this is a whistle-stop tour through the first two chapters. Chapter 2, verse 1. Now a man of the tribe of Levi married a Levite woman, and she became pregnant and gave birth to a son. When she saw that he was a fine child, she hid him for three months. But when she could hide him no longer, this is from the Pharaoh, of course, who was trying to take the, the, the boys and throw them into the Nile. She got a papyrus basket for him and coated it with tar and pitch. She then placed the child in it and put it among the reeds along the bank of the Nile. His sister stood at a distance to see what would happen to him. Then Pharaoh's daughter went down to the Nile to bathe, and her attendants were walking along the river bank. She saw the basket amongst the reeds and sent her female slave to get it. She opened it and saw the baby. He was crying, and she felt sorry for him. This is Moses introducing to you to the person who would represent God's person he would use to bring transformation and redemption to the people. God would be the agent of change, but God would use Moses in a radical and powerful way. Notice what happens here. We're going to have to flash forward, and I'll give you a few spoilers, unfortunately, but you've got Moses who goes from this papyrus basket who then meets a princess who takes him to a palace. And after he's been in the palace for a while, he becomes a prince. And once he's done some really dumb things as a prince, he gets sent out to pasture and lives out in the wilderness. And it's in that space of obscurity and oppression that he is going to find himself getting prepared for God's work of redemption. I hope you can start to see that our view of God preparing and, and God using us is often very clinical and very squeaky clean and we just want a neat path to our outcome, but we don't always realize that God firstly and often uses our placement. That's the first thing. God uses our placement in life. Moses goes from papyrus basket, vulnerable to death, to suddenly being cared for by a princess, put in a palace, and then we will see that God lets him make some really problematic mistakes, and eventually he's looking after sheep in the pasture, but God uses his placement. How has God placed you? What could God be preparing you for based on your placement? What are some of the stories and things you've been through? Because God hasn't made mistakes. In the kind of marriage you, your parents had, the kinds of people that you endured, even the pains that you went through, where you were born, the languages you can speak, all of those matter to God, and only the God of the Bible that I have ever seen knows how to weave the tapestry of the placement of our lives and the pains that we've been through to turn them for good. We're going to see Moses get powerfully used by some really profound placement, but at the time looked like just survival, just his mother trying to keep him alive. So God uses our placement to prepare us for fruitfulness. He also seems to prepare us by using our personal mistakes. Let's look at this in verse 11. This is Moses. 
He's grown up. He's become a prince. He realizes he's a Hebrew boy, and he is now uh, kind of uh, trying to work out his identity as a Hebrew, as a, but a prince in Egypt. He saw an Egyptian beating a Hebrew, one of his own people, looking this way and that and seeing no one. He killed the Egyptian and hid him in the sand. The next day, he went out and saw two Hebrews fighting. He asked the one in the wrong, why are you hitting your fellow Hebrew? The man said, who made you ruler and judge over us? Are you thinking of killing me as you killed the Egyptian? Then Moses was afraid and thought, what I did must have become known. Moses gets a rush of blood to the head. This young prince who thinks he can fix the world in an instant gets a rush of blood to the head and sees an Egyptian mistreating a Hebrew and he says, there's one way to deal with this. I'm going to quickly kill him and I'm going to teach them a lesson and there's going to be change that happens. He may have had a real bent towards social justice. He may have had a kind of pure heart in this, but he makes a major mistake. He becomes a murderer. He becomes a murderer. And we sometimes gloss that over in the Old Testament. You see so much of it, you become callous to it. Moses becomes a murderer. And the next day, he becomes a, a, a kind of scorned Hebrew. Nobody even trusts him on either side. And he flees for his life. A scared, fleeing murderer. Could God use a terrified, convicted killer? This story says yes. This story says that actually God might be utilizing those to move us into some of the places of pain so that he could prepare us for future fruitfulness. If he could do it with Moses, could he not do it with some of our mistakes? I don't know what your biggest mistake is, but I wonder if you would take some time to reflect on it and maybe let yourself realize that that could be the place of God's greatest redemption. That could be the place where God has moved you to see his mercy. Because sometimes, if we follow God through our pains and our major problematic mistakes, he takes us into a place where he builds us up into an image that he's planned. He, he breaks down our false and our pretenses, and he begins to build us into a person for his purposes. Have you seen that? Have you, have, have you, are you beginning to expect that in your own life? Verse 15 says, When Pharaoh heard of this, he tried to kill Moses. But Moses fled from Pharaoh, and he went to live in Midian, where he sat down by a well. Sat down by a well. He was exhausted. He was tired. He was in the desert. You see, God uses our personal problematic mistakes. He uses our placement in life. But then he begins to change some things. He begins to change you and I. And I would suggest that if he's preparing you and I for fruitfulness and redemption, he's going to begin to change two things. And he changes these in Moses. Firstly, he changes Moses' priorities. He changes Moses' priorities. And he does this in the desert place. The desert is often symbolic of God taking a person and beginning to reform them. He takes Moses out of the comfort of Egypt and he takes him to Midian and he sits down by a well. And the story carries on that he becomes a, a shepherd in this desert land and he simply lives there for who knows how long. Some suggest 40 years out there. He spends a long time allowing God to reshape what he truly values. Young prince who thinks he can change the world 
begins to let some of those youthful romantic notions begin to get eroded and he begins to get rebuilt as a kind of humble redeemer. A man who has some of his own self-assurance taken away and he begins to build a person who develops some God assurance. We get into wildernesses in all kinds of ways that begin to shape our priorities. It might be a financial wilderness, loss of work, that begins to change our financial priorities. Suddenly you can't afford the school fees of the school that you wish you could send your kids to. And suddenly you're finding yourself going, I need to re-understand. I need to, to understand again what true priorities are. Is education or a loving home most important? And you begin to look and, and ask these questions. Or relational priorities as you find yourself maybe lonely and isolated and struggling to find the, the, the love experience you're looking for. And, and, and God could be using that to, to reshape your priorities around really learning to be loved and to love Him as the primary source. Sometimes we can be in emotional desert experiences where we just can't experience any warmth. We're in dark sense of depression and we can't emerge out of it. Sometimes those desert spaces are where God is preparing us in that place to learn to receive where it matters most. We always tend towards despising our desert experience. And here we need to remember that Moses has put you by his own mistakes, but God is not wasting a moment of it. He never does. When you're in the desert space, remember this. He's likely reprioritizing you for future fruitfulness. He's likely reshaping what you love so that you can learn to love what he loves. And that probably brings me to my next thing that we see in the story of Moses. He doesn't just change us by reprioritizing us, but he begins to prepare us by changing our love for people. Notice in verse 21 it says, Moses agreed to stay with the man, so we, uh, Moses has saved these ladies who were getting kind of harassed by other shepherds, and he saves them, and he gets introduced to this uh, father of these uh, shepherdesses, and it says, Moses agreed to stay with the man who gave his daughter Zipporah to Moses in marriage. Zipporah gave birth to a son, and Moses named him Gershom, saying, I have become a foreigner in a foreign land. And you'll flash forward to uh, verse 1 of chapter 3. It says, Now Moses was tending the flock from prince to shepherd. What a crazy life journey. This guy who had the world at his fingertips has now got stinky sheep all around him. It's a crazy thought. A prince has become a shepherd and he's looking after sheep in these lonely wilderness spaces. And in that place, God is preparing him. He's in this lonely space and yet God has surrounded him with sheep to look after. Sheep to love, to care for, and to make sure that they continuously are growing into health. If you read through the scriptures, you're going to realize that every time a person is put amongst sheep, it's because he is learning to love people. You see David, who became a sh- went from shepherd to king. It's this beautiful picture of God teaching people to, to love the simple, the basic, the, the obscure, and to learn to not always look for uh, the kind of uh, prowess and to look for status, but to learn to care for the very basic, the very stinky, the very simple. All of us know that loving people is very, very hard. It takes time. 
And, and sometimes we get annoyed by the repeated relationships. It's a difficult colleague. It's a difficult boss. It's a difficult life group. It's a difficult leader. It's a difficult scenario. And you need to remember that sometimes repeated year after year exposure to the same stinky, difficult scenarios is God preparing you to learn to love. How amazing and annoying all at the same time. We wish we could just be put around people that love us and we love them. But Moses wished he could have stayed in the palace and simply said, let my people go. And the Pharaoh said, cool. And they just all went. But life doesn't work like that. God is getting into the messy and the broken of our hearts. And he's teaching us day by day, one stinky scenario after the other, to learn to love people, to learn to really care. And it's out of that place that we begin to see change happen. And God prepares us for amazing future fruitfulness. Let's land with this final part. Verse 23 of chapter 2. During that long period, the king of Egypt died. The Israelites groaned in their slavery and cried out. And their cry for help, uh, uh, and, and their cry for help because of their slavery, went up to God. God heard their groaning and he remembered his covenant with Abraham, with Isaac and with Jacob. So God looked on the Israelites and was concerned about them. Oh, wow. This loving God who deeply cares. He never stops caring. A covenant God who is about to show that he is the one true king, the redeemer, who is going to redeem Israel from Egypt and bring them out of their slavery, has heard their cries. And as he hears their cries, he simultaneously, we'll see, begins to use a prepared man. God has heard the cries of this world. The question is, is, are there some prepared men and women who are not despising obscurity, oppression, opposition, who are not grumbling in the desert, wishing they could just find that job, get more money, get more comfortable, but rather realizing that in that desert space, in that wilderness space, God might just be preparing a person for future fruitfulness. Preparing a person to partner with him to do something way more than you could if your life had stayed simple, cushy, and, and, and commended by the world. What if it's in that obscure place that God is preparing each of us? God is redeeming the world and he's going to use us. We know this is how the story ends. We, we know that we're going to see this powerful God redeeming Israel out of Egypt. And we know that that's just a foreshadow of the God who is going to come in Jesus Christ and bring pure and powerful spiritual redemption for humanity. We know how the story ends. The question today I want to ask you is, have you entrusted yourself to the one who is powerful over all things? And said yes to the God who will defeat all the powers of the sage. And are you also saying day by day yeses to the preparatory work of God as he prepares you for future fruitfulness? As you say yes to recognizing even your problematic mistakes, even the placement of your life, some of those things you don't like, what you look like, how you feel, some of your makeup, that God could use every single part of that for his redemptive purposes. Let's pray. The band are going to lead us in a time of singing. And I wonder if we could just reflect for a moment and say, what could God be doing? What could God be preparing me for as this Redeemer God at work? Why don't you close your eyes with me and let's pray together. Lord Jesus, thank you. 
Thank you that in you we see the, the end picture, at least much more complete. There is still much to be completed. We await your final and full return. But for now, we thank you that we have seen that you are God over all gods. We thank you that as we begin on this Exodus journey, maybe we too can journey with you to bring us out. Bring us out of some of the slavery, some of the stuff that's, that's squashing us, that's oppressing us. And also to partner with you to take some of Egypt out of us. Maybe some of the things we're clinging to and holding on to. Some of the things we don't want to let go of, even though we know we should. Oh Lord, as we even take this time now to sing and to respond, we recognize that you have been placing us perfectly. That you have been putting us right where you want us. Even our own mistakes can be used by you for powerful redemptive partnership. You're the king. We are your subjects. And we make ourselves available as we sing this song together. I pray that we wouldn't rush off and, and kind of switch the screens off and move to our next task, but that we would use these couple of minutes to avail ourselves to you and to say yes to whatever redemptive work you may want to do in us. Recognizing you as king, we're beginning to recognize your preparing work for future fruitfulness. Thank you, Jesus. We love you. Let's sing together.